You are listening to A Bigger Life, a podcast by The Crossing on how to live into God's bigger story. Welcome to another episode of A Bigger Life. I'm your host, Dave Cover, and what we try to do on this podcast is interview interesting people, interestingly living out their faith in the gospel and their vocation and culture or in their family or in some other way, their story. And today I'm excited to have a conversation with Dr. Justin Dyer. He is professor of political science at the University of Missouri, also a co-founder of the Kinder Institute here in Columbia, which is kind of a big deal. He's been teaching political science at the University of Missouri since 2009, so past eight years. He's been here and has fast become a kind of rising star. He's uh, written several books. He's written a book that we're going to talk about today, a book on C.S. Lewis and on politics and natural law, which I thought was really, really interesting. The problem with the book is it's too expensive, these academic books. Uh, I think you can get it now in the ebook format for like $25. I spent $50 on my hardback. I appreciate that. Yeah, well, I, it was something important for me to do. I really like C.S. Lewis and I like you, and so I was interested in, in, in seeing how the two met in that book, and I thought it was excellent. Uh, you also wrote a book in 2013, Slavery, Abortion, and the Politics of politics of constitutional meaning. So that's, again, not one you'd pick off the popular reading shelf at Barnes & Noble. I bet that book cost $100. The more difficult the title, the more expensive the book. Is that how it works? It's pretty pretty typical. You, you get a $100 book, not out of the question. And then the natural law and the anti-slavery constitutional tradition. And then uh, one that I'm interested in, we'll talk about these a little bit, the American Soul, The Contested Legacy of the Declaration of Independence. That's kind of a hot topic mm-hmm. these days when it comes to race and and uh, and things like that. But uh, Justin has uh, been a member of the Crossing since he's been here, at least since, uh, was it been since you've been here? Or how, how? Just about since we've been here. My wife was, uh, she was in the original Rockbridge crew when she was an undergraduate here. And so we moved back to Columbia in 2009. And um, Got it. So she was a member, she was a part here before she, she was a member of the you. crossing okay. before um, we grew up together. So not got before it. she met me, before we got married. And then when we came back to Columbia, we jumped back in and got involved with the crossing. Yeah. And I, I have to say, I'm a little biased. I've known Justin, not just because he's a member of the crossing, but he's also a member of my Friday morning men's Bible study. So I've gotten to know him more than just the average member of the crossing. Uh, so you're clearly an outspoken, openly published Christian mm-hmm academic on a secular university has that been a challenge for you it's been it really hasn't been um secular universities are all i know i was a public school kid growing up i went to oklahoma for undergrad and texas for grad school and i'm, I'm here at missouri so i don't really know the difference i don't know any better you know having not been on a christian campus but my colleagues have been great i've i've been able to publish things on you know book on c.s lewis i have I've written about abortion i have things on natural law and the anti-slavery tradition. I mean, these are not uncontroversial They don't think you're topics. a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal. Well, they might think that, but they, but they, don't but they, but they let me they hang. They treat you with respect. Yeah, that's right. They let me hang around. I actually Respectful had, Neanderthal. I, t- I took a class at Texas, and there were four four of us um, who were in the room that were 
we had a group of Christian grad students at Texas and the, the other students called us the amen corner in our grad seminars. But then this one particular law professor called us the Neanderthal four. There you go. Um, so no, so I haven't been without, without those kinds of comments, those, you know, macro aggressions, um, that we yeah. get, but, uh, but on the other hand, Did you I tell have, them the trigger word. No, I exactly. <laughs> on the other hand, I have nothing to complain about. I mean, things have been great. Um, I've, I've been able to advance through grad school and, and, come onto the faculty here and we've built the kinder Institute and, you know, been able to teach classes. And so I, you know, I have no complaints at all about how I've been treated. This kinder Institute that you're the co-founder of, just give me a quick synopsis. What is that? We I mean, I got a $25 million, $25 million gift a couple of years ago to, to help put this together. We are an interdisciplinary academic center that focuses on American political thought and history, particularly interested in the American founding and its legacy today. This book on CS Lewis and politics is, is, doggone interesting, at least from my point of view, because I really like C.S. Lewis, but I, 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 the stuff I didn't know was kind of C.S. Lewis's view of politics, government, things like that. But one of the things I thought was interesting about C.S. Lewis that I read in your book was just how influential he is when it comes to the English-speaking world of Christianity. But you say here it's arguable that C.S. Lewis has had a greater impact on Christians in the last hundred years than any other writer. You think that's true? I think it's it's arguable. You know, that's what we wrote in the book. I don't know. I'm trying to think of who else might hold that mantle. If you John Paul II or somebody like that, perhaps, right? In terms of 20th century people uh, writing, that'd probably about be for the world. But I'm, I guess, I guess, so I guess maybe English speaking. Thinking about English speaking or yeah. American evangelicals in particular, I think Lewis. You know, he is at the top of the list of just about anybody's list in terms of influential Christian authors and writers. You see him quoted all the time. It seems like his stock is continuing to rise. The Narnia movies came out and he's continuing to sell all of the classic books in, in his catalog and Harper Collins, you know, they sell millions of Lewis books every year. Still, he's one of the rare people in the 20th century whose books never go out of print, who's you know continually being read. And some of the things, some of the things you, you read, some of the things that have been written in Christianity Today and other sources about Lewis, and people will talk about the way that Lewis altered how we think about Christianity, how we talk about Christianity. It's rare, you know, for a church like the Crossing, and the Crossing's not unique in this. It's rare to have a few weeks go by without Lewis being quoted in a sermon. Yeah, I think and, he's going to be quoted at least once a month. Right, exactly. Maybe several times. Exactly. And it was unique for me. I, I picked up a Lewis book when I was in high school and had no idea about Lewis's influence or popularity or anything like that. I just went to the high school library. We had an assignment to pick out any book and read it. And so I went to the religion section and found Mere Christianity, took it down. I read it. I thought it was phenomenal. It was really interesting. Opened up all sorts of new ideas to me. But again, had no idea that Lewis was who he is. I had no idea he was popular. I had no idea that This book is your school was so library in, in high school? This is my school library. is Olathe, Kansas, public school. It's a very modest assignment. And all we had to do was read a book. And, and they, so had found book. they had Lewis's Mere Christianity on the shelf. And they had Mere shelf. Christianity on the shelf. I recognized the name just from the Chronicles of Narnia, and that was about the only thing I knew about Lewis. I had no idea anything else about what he had written. And for whatever reason, it just clicked. The very first chapter in Mere Christianity, it's, you know, it's from his BBC broadcast talks, and he starts with natural law, and it's called the law of human nature. And he makes this really basic argument that everybody has some inkling that things are right and wrong, and that we start with that. And then from there, we can have put together clues about the meaning of the universe. And I read that, and it, it was simply stated and put forward, and it seemed really important. And then he made two two claims. He said that um, 
that this, this idea that we have done things wrong and the idea that, uh, that we should have known better. Um, those two things he said are the, the keys to all clear thinking about the universe and ourselves. And I thought that that was a pretty big claim and I should think more sort about that. Sort of a that. common human condition. <laughs> a common human condition. And, yeah. and it's, you know, the key to thinking clearly about ourselves and the, the universe that we find ourselves in. And so I thought that, you know, that's really important. And that was probably my first, you know, foray into this whole world that Lewis opened up to me. You know, you, you mentioned in the book, which I thought was an interesting quote, you say philosopher Peter Kraft, who's a, his name looks like Kreeft, but it's pronounced mm-hmm. Kraft, I think. He's a Catholic philosopher now. He used to be a Protestant, became Catholic. But I thought he had a really interesting, he said, Lewis found time to produce some 60 first quality works of literary history, literary criticism, theology, philosophy, autobiography, biblical studies, historical philosophy, fantasy, science fiction, letters, poems, Formal and informal essays, a historical novel, a spiritual diary, religious allegory, short stories, and a children's book. And he says, um, Lewis, Kreft goes on to say that Lewis, he concludes, was not a man, he was a world. Which I think is a really great quote because it's kind of true, you know. Like you said, probably nobody has influenced our thought uh, as Christians more than C.S. Lewis. And I think, why, why the fascination with, with Lewis? Why are we so fascinated with him as, as Christians? Why do I quote him once every three sermons? It seems like he has a unique ability to condense ancient wisdom into a, a format that we can easily understand, and he makes things accessible to us. I didn't really realize this when I started reading him, but he didn't claim to be original in anything. And in fact, I think he would have been horrified at the thought of being original. He that, prided himself his, on borrowing from the antiquities. That's exactly right. Thinkers. And his goal was always to say things that were true, no matter how many times they'd been said before. And I think what he really excelled at was saying things that are true and learning from, gleaning wisdom from other sources and putting them together in a way that we could learn from that. And so when you read Lewis, and again, I didn't quite realize this when I first started reading, and when you read Lewis, you're being introduced to a whole tradition and a, a whole body of wisdom literature that we could have access to and we could read all those books. But for some reason, Lewis has just been a guide and such an easy guide for so many people to get involved in in learning from the past in that way. And that's probably why we like him. I think it's just his writing style, his accessibility, the way that he presents those arguments out there. And I think the way that he gives a kind of intellectual credibility to the claims of Christianity. You have this quote in your book, it's, it's impossible in particular to fully understand evangelicals and evangelical thought without understanding C.S. Lewis. Partly uh, that quote is, it's directed at some of my colleagues in the political science world in trying to explain to them why it is that we should spend our time thinking about C.S. Lewis. And if you wanna understand American politics, if you wanna understand American culture, then you need to know something about American evangelicalism. And it's hard to know something about that without understanding C.S. Lewis. And so the student of American religious culture or American religion generally, or even religion and politics, I argue, should at least be familiar with some of the things that C.S. Lewis had to say. Which is an excellent point. You know, that term evangelicals, I think you and I both hate that term now Mm -hmm. because of what it's been characterized as now, you know, white Trump supporters that want to take America back. Oh, sure. So you always think about, you know, before somebody uses that term, it obviously depends, yeah. depends on what you mean by that. <laughs> yeah, because right? I'm not that. Yeah, no. But uh, so I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out another term. I don't like even using the word evangelical. I don't know what the other term would be. Some people have tried to use the term orthodox, but then that kind of gets confused with Eastern Orthodox. Sure. And so I don't think that's going to work. So if somebody's going to have to come up with a better term, maybe Lewison will be the uh, 
a new term for Christians who believe well, the Bible. And, and, and as we're thinking about that, so I, on the one hand, I'm saying that Lewis is probably understanding something about Lewis is essential to understanding this group that we call American evangelicals. On the other hand, I don't know that Lewis would be comfortable with that term he wouldn't, if, if it was applied yeah. to himself. Um, he would probably not identify as an evangelical. But um, when we say evangelical, so let's just, yeah. let's just, for the lack of a better title, use that term for, for here, but... But uh, what we mean by that is we believe the Bible is the Word of God. We believe that Jesus is the only uh, solution for the sin problem. Everybody does need a Savior because they have sin, and that Christ is the only way we we have a relationship with God because of his sacrifice on the cross, and his resurrection was literal bodily resurrection, which is guaranteeing our own resurrection in the kingdom of God, and that this is a message that the world needs to hear. Mm-hmm. I think that's what we mean when we say evangelical. Sure, I once, Do you add anything to that? Or is that no, I don't list? think I would add anything to that. I, asked, I once had uh, a colleague ask on a scale of 1 to 10 how Christian was I, and I had to think about <laughs> how to answer that as another way of asking you know, what this evangelical term means. And I think the answer it's at actually the time, a really good question. I don't, and I don't, know was, I don't know if this is a good answer or not, but I said something like, well, I think I could say the creeds without blushing. And maybe that's, uh, you yeah, know, that's a, a way that we could think about what, what is this term yeah, that we're throwing good. around. We, you know, we take the claim seriously and we... Yep. Um, and we think what the tradition taught was true, yep. and you know, and those various points of departure from there. Yeah, well, you, obviously, natural law is kind of your deal. So, what 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 is natural law? How would you define? What At a really basic level, law? we were talking about this idea that we all have moral knowledge and moral obligations that we know that there's such a thing as right and wrong and that we fail to live by it. And at a basic level, that's what the natural law tradition is claiming. There are two aspects to that. Uh, one is the the nature side, what's natural, and then the other is the law. And so just briefly, if we took those one at a time, the claim is that there's something about human nature, that morality has to do with human nature, and that the highest aspect of our human nature is our reason. So it's something that we know, we can have knowledge about uh, the moral law. And then the the law aspect of this is that it's obligatory on us. We don't just know the right way to behave, but we're actually obliged to obey it. And those are the two really basic claims. And once you start to diverge from that, if you say that you know morality is known in some other way, or that there's no such thing as morality, or that morality is all subjective or something like that, then you're, you're no longer talking about natural law. How involved would C.S. Lewis be in politics today in our country if he were a Christian in our time? I think he'd probably be just about as involved in our politics as he was in his own, which is to say not at all. Lewis deliberately cultivated a reputation as being apolitical, as not caring about politics. I think that he really took seriously his vocation as a religious writer and as somebody who was writing, writing about religion. Um, to a, a skeptical audience, and he was weary about having any of his religious writings or apologetic writings tied up in any way with contemporary politics. And so he distanced himself from politics. He turned down uh, an offer from Winston Churchill to be a commander of the British Empire. He it's an honorary title an honorary kind of title that that the prime minister's office had offered him, and he was actually a great admirer of Winston Churchill, and so it, it had nothing to do with Churchill. Um, but it had everything to do with not wanting to appear on the list. And he actually, in his letter back to the prime minister's office, said that there are knaves who say and fools who believe that all of my religious writings are really uh, covert anti-leftist propaganda. And my appearance on your list would, of course, strengthen their hand. And so this is what he writes back to That's the prime funny. minister's office. So it's not that Lewis didn't have 
ideas about politics. He actually did. This is the whole point of the book is that he thought deeply about politics and, and yeah, because you have quite a bit from and the foundations writings, of a just yeah. political order. On the other hand, I think he was much more interested in influencing culture. He was much more in, interested in influencing his students. He was much more interested in writing about religion and, and doing Christian apologetics in that way. He actually at one point said that the, the most overt political act a Christian could do is convert his neighbor. And in that sense, if we judge Lewis by by his own standard there, I think he's deeply political, right, in terms of yeah. the, all the people that he converts. But he, he really had no interest in uh, partisan policy debates. He didn't pay close attention to parliamentary um, debates and things that were going on there. He did try to distance himself from politics. At one point, he writes to his brother, Warney, that he wished that somebody would just create a stagnation party. And, and their one claim <laughs> to being reelected was that nothing of any significance had ever happened while they were in office. He was probably in the brand of just leave me alone conservatives. I, I think I'm tempted to call him a libertarian, although that's not the right word for him. But he was somebody who worried deeply about the concentration of government power. He worried deeply about government power being used to break up all sorts of private activities and private affairs that he thought were important and important uh, for the for the state to protect. He thought a lot about private property and individual freedom. He thought that the natural law tradition was extremely important as an undergirding for our society. But he was not the kind of person who would give money to a political cause, who would campaign for any candidate, who would write op-ed pieces on behalf of a candidate. And so if we could, you know, it's a, a weird hypothetical, but if we could transport Lewis to our time and our politics, would he get involved in that? I'd say no, probably not. So he, 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 he had political views. He just wanted to not be known as somebody who had political views. That's right. Yeah. He, he didn't want his writings about Christianity. To get in the, he didn't want to get, have politics get in the way of what he thought was far more important. That's right. He didn't, he didn't want his writings to be associated with politics. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, he had a, an education steeped in the works of political philosophy. He taught his students, you know, in Oxford, they would take students in these tutorials and he would take students in history and political science. And he taught them the canon of Western political philosophy all the way from Plato to Lenin. And he was doing that throughout the 1930s. Not John Lenin, but Vladimir Not John Lenin, Lenin, but yeah. Vladimir Lenin, the yeah. other, the other Lenin. So what would he do about politics? I, I think he would have some ideas. He would probably be writing broadly about um, the foundations of just political orders and things like that, but I doubt that he'd be a heavy partisan one way or another. But he was not a fan of socialism. No, he wasn't. Uh, and it was always because he worried about the cost of socialism. And you saw, you know, thinking about the context of his own time, you saw the concentration of power in the Soviet Union. You saw the concentration of power in, in Hitler's Germany. You saw the concentration of power in Mussolini's Italy. And Lewis was warning that all of these different movements worldwide were all part of a, the same general trend and that the industrial democracies were not immune from that. And so he had a line at one point where he said, you know, many a mild-eyed scientist in a democratic laboratory means exactly the same thing as the fascist. And he was always worried that democracies were not immune from this temptation to concentrate power. But in the democracies, he thought it would come to bear in a different kind of way, and it would come in the authority of science and scientists who claim, because of their expertise or knowledge, to be able to solve our problems for us, if only we'll concentrate power and delegate that power to them in these bureaucracies. That's and really so, interesting. Yeah. So, that, so they would gain political power by calling the opposition science deniers that's exactly right and this this actually figures in one of his um, space trilogy novels he ends up writing in that hideous strength about this nefarious government bureaucracy called the national 
Institutes for Coordinated Experiments, which is nice <laughs> as an acronym. And it's this kind of happy fascism that comes to bear in this uh, bureaucracy that has benevolent motives, but they're completely divorced from any moral tradition that came before it. And that's the real point that Lewis is always getting at, that if we, if we divorce what we're trying to do as a government or society from conceptions or notions of justice that are rooted in some, Goodness, in, some enduring and eternal foundation, rather than the whims that we happen to have at any particular moment in time or that our, our conditioners um, happen to have at any moment in time, then uh, then civilization society is, is done for. Well, you say in your book, if you abandon what's right and good and just, all you're left with is power. And That's right. That's yeah. right. It's it's strictly yeah. power. And the irony, the kind of supreme irony of all of this is that then the power is not um, not directed toward any particular ends by reason. It's simply, you know, animal nature at the end of the day gets the upper hand and tells us what we what we should be and what we become. Lewis was really, really pessimistic then when he starts thinking about all this. He sees the trends that are happening in England. He sees the trends in other countries. And he often despairs at politics. And so you were asking about, you know, what would he think about politics today? I think he'd probably be extremely pessimistic and despair about any kind of hope for the future. He does in numerous points talk about how any kind of solution to the political problems we have have to come from somewhere else. You know, supernatural solutions are all there, all there possibly could be for Lewis at some point. You know, he, he's really scratching his head and trying to think a, a way out of the situation that we have in the modern world. Yeah, I mean, because he was very, you know, he, he he came to his Christian theology and came to his adulthood in terrible times in Europe. I mean, he was like you said, fought in World War One. Uh, and then those were hard times economically after World War One, and then he saw the rise of of the Imperial Japan and the rise of Nazi Germany. And uh, it's helpful for us to keep in mind just how brutal and bloody the 20th century was. Yeah. And we often, particularly my students now, and I think those of us who didn't grow up through that and live through that we have this sense that things are getting better and always getting better. And somehow the things that come later are better than the things that came before. And, and we seem to just completely screen from view just how bad the 20th century was. And that was something Lewis did not do. He experienced and lived through that. He was wounded in world war one. He lost some of his closest friends in world war one. After the war, he was one of the aspiring post-war poets that were essential nihilists. He was an atheist after the war. He, tried his hand at poetry and actually the first public book that he ever wrote first published book that ever wrote was called um, spirits in bondage and it was published under the pseudonym clive hamilton which was his middle name and his his mother's maiden name and it was just full of really dark poems about the universe that we live in about the darkness about how there is no good, that God is an illusion. Um, he at one point talks about cursing God for, um, this, for is the, before for the he was a this is before that he was a Christian and this was after World War One, And it gives you a window into Lewis and how Lewis was thinking about the world before he became a Christian. And it's a dark picture, you know, the dark picture of the world. And I think a lot of people in the 1920s, 1930s were affected in the same way. And so that's the backdrop against which is uh, against which Lewis is so pessimistic. And there's you know, reasons for his pessimism about the, the modern world. And then what do we see after that? We see World War II, and then we see um, the advance of, of the Soviet Union and, and the advance of the welfare state in, in the democracies, and he's really worried about all these different trends. What did C.S. Lewis think, or maybe what do you think, uh, regarding the government's role in dealing with poverty? So we talked about, you know, socialism being bad 
and having good intentions, but but not being good ultimately because it gives the government more power, and with power comes coercion, and the good intentions aren't met. But 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 does the government have a role at all in guarding against excessive economic inequality? And also, we talked about the dangers of too too powerful of a government. But what about a government's role in fighting racial injustice? fighting against, for example, Jim Crow laws in the 50s and 60s, making sure there's racial justice and opportunity. I think it's important to remember that Lewis is writing at a time when he's looking out and he's seeing Nazi Germany, he's seeing communist Soviet Union, fascist Italy, and he's deeply worried about the concentration of government power. And so all of his warnings are related to that. He's not a policy wonk. He's not offering policy prescriptions and detailed guidelines to what policy the government should adopt. But he is giving warnings broadly about the dangers of concentrating government power. But all of that, I think, could be qualified as he's looking at specific instances. And one of those areas is in the provision of health care. He's writing to an American woman, and I'll just read you from this letter that he writes. She is telling him about her very bad experience with American health care and, and her experience in an American hospital. And Lewis writes back and he says, what you've gone through begins to reconcile me to our welfare state, of which I've said so many hard things. National Health Service with free treatment for all has many drawbacks. And he goes on to describe all of the efficiency problems that, that you're going to run into. But then he says it's better than leaving people to sink or swim on their own resources. So an interesting, I think, qualification from Lewis. He's wrestling with these issues just like anybody else is wrestling with these issues. But he was always deeply worried about human nature and fallen human nature and what that looks like for government and government policy. On the question of economic inequality, he approaches it from a really similar perspective. He did not think that equality was a good in its own right. He has a, a essay just called Equality, which is very good and worth looking at. And in that essay, he talks about equality. He says that it's not like one of those things uh, that is good for its own sake, like happiness or wisdom, but that equality still is necessary. And specifically, he says legal and economic equality are absolutely necessary remedies for the fall because they protect us against other people's cruelty. And I think what he has in mind there is the concentration of power, but in the private sphere and in private uh, economic inequality. He's also writing from an old aristocratic society. He's very familiar with the way that government policy actually preserved inequalities and that those inequalities allowed cruelty from one person to another. So he's not dogmatic on this. He's thinking deeply about it and, and really wrestling with the question. And then on the last the issue of Jim Crow laws. Lewis was not thinking about American politics. He never actually visited America. He doesn't have any detailed or long analyses of Jim Crow or anything else going on in America. But he does, I think, make very clear in The Abolition of Man that racism is a perversion of a generally good principle, which is that we should take care of our own. And he goes through and talks about how when that principle is perverted, it turns into what he calls jingoism, racialism, and extreme nationalism. And of course, he's thinking again about Nazi Germany at this time. And he concludes by saying, in the long run, all men are our brothers. And so I think there are certainly resources within Lewis to criticize racism. Now, the question, should government have a role to, to play in dismantling Jim Crow? And it's a trick question in some ways, because Jim Crow, it's important to keep in mind, was actually imposed by the government. It was a, a system, a legal system of coercion imposed by the government. And I think Lewis, as somebody who advocated individual freedom, would certainly think that the government has a duty to refrain from imposing that kind of racial injustice on people. And in the American context, it was 
the federal government often coming in to prevent state and local governments from imposing those kinds of restrictions on people. And uh, and I certainly think that there's resources within Lewis to think deeply about that question and, and how it continues in our own politics today. You know, in Chapter 3, you talk about the German evangelical church mm-hmm. and how, and, it, and in some sense, it kind of, this is, dovetailing on what your what C.S. Lewis's suspicions were of government, but how the German Christian evangelical church basically became symbiotically related with Nazism. Yeah, and that was actually their title was German evangelical church, not a, you know, not a descriptive term, but the, the title that the church had. Um, they, when, when Nazism came to power, they put demands on the church and the church either had to accommodate Nazism or perish. And tragically, many of the German uh, church officials chose to accommodate Nazism. And so they literally had on the altar in some of the churches, a copy of the Bible and a copy of Mein Kampf. And the bishop became the Reich's bishop uh, serving the, the state, serving, you know, the church serving the state in Germany and serving the nation. And, this was a, a tragic development within Christianity to see the churches so aligned with the state and then the state politics that you know that's going on in these different places. And so Lewis is reacting strongly against that. He does have a strong sense, I think, of the the necessary separation of church and state, um, at least in the way that we think about that in America, of separating those two things, and which maybe helps us think a little bit about why he talked so much about the danger of concentrating power and the necessity of having spheres of private activities and private associations that were not directly influenced by the state. So the reason why he was skeptical of socialism was because it concentrated power necessarily so in the That's right. So one thing that we shouldn't take away from this is that the promises that the welfare state and that socialism promised um, are not themselves bad things. Lewis is not against feeding people. He's not against providing health care to people. He's not against any of that. What he worried about, and the way that he phrased this was the question for everyone was whether or not we could get the honey without getting the sting as we create these kinds of organizations and concentrate power. And it came back to a question of whether this time when we do this, is there some reason why human nature won't be like it has always been before that some of yeah. these people who wield power are going to be cruel and yeah. and vicious and, and unjust. And if we have a kind of realist look at that, then it doesn't mean that we wouldn't try to create solutions to some of these collective problems that we have as a society. And it might mean that we are creative about the kinds of government organizations that we create, but we would at least be attentive to that deep moral problem that's rooted in human nature ultimately. And that was the thing that he was worried that we were, were moving forward so quickly that we lost sight of all the wisdom that the past has to teach us about that. And I just think that the whole, I just want to keep this threaded with the whole German Christian thing. And that is, it's so, you know, the German Christians weren't idiots. I mean, mm-hmm. you got people in there that are, uh, and they were, they were smart, they were smart people and they knew their Bibles. Uh, but somehow they just got captivated by, swept up in the Nazi f- fervor mm-hmm. of the time and uh and it just seemed like a natural fit to them their their christian worldview had become a political worldview mm-hmm. and uh and i think that's a huge warning for us i mean we we, we kind of saw that in the 1980s with uh evangelical churches and the republican party mm-hmm. i think we're kind of seeing it a little bit now when it comes to more progressive christians in the democratic party I think just I just think the human nature is to find some sort of political cause 
it, when your Christianity gets off track. Mm-hmm. That seems to have happened all, all the time throughout history. Sure. I think there's a danger with, with ever aligning ourselves with political power just for the sake of being aligned with political power. On the other hand, you know, as we're thinking about this, we're thinking about the institutions as institutions and, you know, the German church was one example, but they weren't the only example going on in Germany at the time. The university was the same. The university professors had to go along with Nazism or lose their occupation, lose their livelihood, lose their ability to provide for their families. There were real pressures on people. And, you know, sadly, some of the university professors decided to go along. Some of the the big name philosophers at the time decided to go along. And some of the people in the church decided to go along. And I think every institution faced similar kinds of, of pressures. And so thinking about, you know, what does that tell us about today and how we think about politics? Certainly, there's a danger always in having the church or any other institution so aligned with political power that it distorts their own priorities. Um, but then getting back to maybe a secondary question that comes up there, should Christians therefore not be involved in politics? And I'd say, no, it's it's a different kind of answer to that. But uh, Christians are called, hopefully, I think some Christians are called to take care of, the, of their communities, to seek the good of their communities, and to do that through politics. And one of the lessons that comes from Lewis is not that politics is bad, not that we shouldn't be involved in politics or care about it. Um, but that we all have different callings, and I think he saw his own as being much more in the literary world. But some of you know some of our brothers and sisters are are called to be in politics and to do diligent work there, and and that's something that we shouldn't lose sight of. So, what was the role of government then in Lewis's view? Do you think he had a really limited role of, uh, view of the role of government? There are several places, a kind of shockingly limited view of the role of government. Uh, several places where he talks about mere Christianity. Even um, he has a line where he says that a husband and wife having a conversation by a fire, a pair of friends playing darts in a pub. That's what the state is there for. You know, these moments of private happiness, that's what the state exists for. That's what the state should be trying to do. Protect is, that. Is to protect for that, that. To try to create the conditions. Human flourishing. Try to create the conditions under which individuals can flourish and, and that your flourishing comes primarily through private pursuits. This is one of the areas where arguably Lewis breaks from the ancient world. He read the ancients. He talked about himself as being a native. But this is a very modern understanding, actually, of the state and the state's role that our our flourishing primarily is done in, in the private realm and that the state's function is to protect that and to allow for that. Um, but, but it's really the private pursuits. I mean, Lewis at one point ranks friendship as the source of almost all of happiness that comes in this life. And so you're thinking about the kinds of things that make people flourish, and it's not the kinds of things that a state can provide for you. The state's there to not intrude on those areas and to make it possible, but the the real stuff of life happens in private. Yeah, I read a quote one time, was one of my favorite quotes of his, that the there's not a better sound than the laughter of men around Mm -hmm. beer and pipes. right. Good conversation. Right. No, that, and that's exactly right. When you see Lewis, I mean, I think if you thought about a life well lived, it was a life for him, at least, spent with friends, spent uh, reading good books and contemplating things. And to the extent that the state made that possible, that was great. But to the extent that it didn't, he said it was all just vanity and a vexation of spirit that it was, you know, all armies, all parliaments, all politics is really oriented toward allowing individuals to flourish. And if it doesn't do that, then it's all a waste of time. Well, let, let's, let's move on to some past books you've read and just give me a little synopsis real quick, because I'm interested 
the book you read wrote slavery abortion and the politics of constitutional meaning what's that book about the book is about the way that the debates about slavery and abortion have run in parallel tracks in american politics and particularly about the way that people in the abortion debates in the latter half of the 20th century have appealed to the legacy of slavery in america to try to make sense of different positions and this is something that people in the pro-life and pro-choice sides have have each done really since the 1960s and i was really amazed at looking at some of these primary sources just how frequently and how often the legacy of slavery has been invoked in the debates about abortion. And so what this book gets into is the structure of those debates tries to really interrogate them and figure out what's going on, what people are arguing about, and then the way that those debates have actually influenced the development of how we understand what the Constitution means. And so that gets into the second part of the title, which is the politics of constitutional meaning and the way that you know through these debates that we actually construct uh, the meaning of the Constitution as it's practically lived in our lives. You know, obviously, people that go to the crossing have heard me preach about abortion and um, how the Bible clearly, in my opinion, uh, is against abortion. And I've um, been accused in the past, you know, if I've ever talked about politics and abortion, which I don't really do, but I did uh, I did a while back and I was accused of being a one-issue voter. And my retort was, well, would you ever vote for a pro-slavery president? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're a one-issue voter, too. Sure. It's just a matter of what the issue is. No, I think the the debate over slavery is powerful in the 19th century when you read the structure of the debates, and they do have certain parallels today. We need to be careful about how we make that argument. It's a it's a very difficult argument to make. It's very sensitive, you know, depending on who's listening to it and how they interpret what you're saying. And so it's a difficult one. On the other hand, I think this, the structure of the argument about slavery is very, very similar to the structure of the argument about abortion. And a lot of people recognize that very early on, including people like Jesse Jackson, um, who wrote an article for the National Right to Life newsletter back before he was uh, a became pro-choice and compared the arguments over abortion to the arguments over slavery. A lot of um, major civil rights leaders were doing the same thing. Norma McCorvey, who's the namesake for um, Jane Roe in Roe versus Wade, has made this argument repeatedly before her her death recently. So it's it's not an argument that I made up. It's one that I've, I've found as part of American public discourse and then tried to make sense of it and, and figure out the way that that's influenced how you know, we as a people understand these two issues. Yeah. Let's move on to this other book, Natural Law and the Anti-Slavery Constitutional Tradition. That was a dissertation uh, project turned into a book. And what I tried to do in that book was to show how the what we call the anti-slavery constitutional tradition, people in American politics in the 19th century who understood the Constitution to be fundamentally anti-slavery or essentially anti-slavery, the way in which their argument depended on a particular conception of natural law. And so the you know the title of the book links those two things together. And I go through a series of case studies. I look at um, John McClain and Abraham Lincoln and Joseph Story and others and the way that their anti-slavery arguments developed. Lincoln's got some really good natural law type phrases. Lincoln has some really good natural law yeah. type phrases. He's, yeah. he's very His good. His best yeah. ones almost are natural law. Oh, he's very good. And he was very good at uh, at taking complex arguments and, and boiling them down to really simple kinds of things. You know, at one point he's, he'll be debating some of these issues. And at one point he, um, he'll say something like, you know, even if we believe that slavery is a positive good, I've never met a person who believes it's a good for him. You know, <laughs> you know it's just these kinds of things that just yeah. take, take the issue to its root often. 
And Martin Luther King seemed to have natural laws behind a lot of the things that he said that are most powerful. Sure. King's letter from Birmingham City Jail, I think, is unintelligible without his references to the natural law. And he's trying to make sense of his ability to or willingness to disobey certain municipal laws. And he appeals to a law that's higher than that. He references Aquinas and Augustine and um, and appeals to the natural law tradition. So this is this really is a, a long running aspect of American politics that we often forget about. You have this other book that you wrote the same year, American Soul, The Contested Legacy of the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration's been really interesting. That sounds like a controversial title, but I'm not not sure why. I'm not even sure what it means. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So it was an edited volume. I actually, I put together a series of primary source texts for that book. So it's, it's not a controversial book in the sense that there's no controversial argument. But what I tried to do is, is to show how the opening lines of the Declaration of Independence, which have this statement about natural law, that we're all created equal, that we're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that that basic framework and those ideas have been contested from the beginning. What's the legacy of that? How do we understand that? It's Who a very it natural to? law statement. It's a very natural law statement. and uh, But it begs the question, who's the bearer of these rights? Um, what does it mean? How can we take those principles and actually translate them into practice. And so the first part of the book has documents about slavery. Slavery was the big issue, the big moral issue in the 19th century having to do with natural law. And so many of the arguments and debates have to do with either how we interpret those principles in the Declaration or maybe simply rejecting those principles in the Declaration. So much the worse for them if they undercut our right to hold slaves. And so you have uh, you know a series of debates over that issue. But then moving on from, from the Civil War, you have a series of debates that crop up over progressivism and the legacy of progressivism, over women's rights, over the right to vote, over contemporary foreign policy, and a host of other things that are all looking at the legacy of the Declaration of Independence. And it's one of those things that just for practical political purposes, if you have a reform movement that you want to lead in American politics, you should get the declaration to be on your side. Well, it seems like I remember a a specific quote by Martin Luther King where he talked about the Declaration of Independence, and he said that these men, I'm going to paraphrase because I can't remember the exact quote, but their, their moral ideas were beyond their own personal morals. And so eventually their moral ideas formed Mm -hmm. the kind of anti-slavery policy of the United States government Mm -hmm. because the document couldn't help but form that. That's right. And in his, I have a dream speech, he calls it a promissory note that this was a, you know, the, the check has come back and said insufficient funds. Uh, But nonetheless, it was a promissory note written by the founders. And so uh, King intentionally ties back the civil rights movement to the founding and tries to enlist the founding in in defense of the civil rights movement, which I think is, um, I think it happens to be a, probably true to reality in the sense that those principles are good and they do inform the civil rights movement. But it's also good politics. Mm-hmm. If you're going to lead a movement like that, you obviously don't want to stand up at the Lincoln Memorial in D.C. and criticize the founders. And so right. he's you know he's Im- invoking the founders and trying to bring their principles more into line with with where he sees the country going or he wants it to be going. Yeah, yeah. That's good. So it may not have been a personal strong conviction of his. He may have just been appealing to a common 
common text, so to speak, of our nation. And I, I don't think I don't think he was deceitful at all, but I think it's good strategy. You know, yeah. if, if you're going to appeal to those things, that you should you should be able to um, to challenge Americans to live up to their ideals. But of course, that means that the ideals are themselves good, rather than attacking them um, for for being false. But uh, you know, other people have taken the other tack as well, obviously, and people still do today. Yeah. What else you got your sights on? What are you doing? What other projects? I started writing an essay on James Wilson. James Wilson was a signer of the Declaration of the Constitution. He was one of the first Supreme Court justices, and he kind of fancied himself as an American Blackstone, wrote lectures on law. And I've been really surprised in reading some of those, revisiting some of those lectures, just how much of the themes of the natural law tradition that I've been working on previously are found right in his lectures. The first lecture that he gives is on the natural law and how it undergirds everything else that comes after it. And so I think that there's enough there to sustain my attention for a while. You mentioned you were doing a class, something on race. I'm, I'm going to teach one section of this class next semester. It's been put together by my, one of my kinder institute colleagues, Adam Seagrave, and Stephanie Shonikin, who's the chair of the Black Studies Department. They came together and, and put together a class called Race in the American Story. It has a series of primary source documents, mainly from the 19th century, some from the 20th century, about the problem of race or about race relations or about slavery or, or some variation of that theme. And our goal was to have about 15 students in each section, and everybody has the exact same syllabus. And we'll work through those readings with the students together. And the goal would be to be able to get them into conversation together about race and American politics and and use these historical episodes to do that and a way to kind of take it away from contemporary politics in some sense. But that'd be a really interesting class. I think it'll be really good. Yeah, yeah I think it's a great development. Yeah. I think it'll be good for the students to be able to sit down and, and do that. And that was one of the things that it was transformational for me as a student when I got to sit down and have somebody put the Lincoln-Douglas debates in front of me and have me read it. And it's you know not something I would have picked up on my own, but it was fascinating. And I think good for citizens generally to have to do that. And so hopefully we'll, we'll be able to make a contribution at Mizzou. Well, thanks for sitting down and, and talking. I'm going to wrap it up here just because we can't go on forever. But every time I talk to you, I'm just amazed at how smart you are. And I wish I was as smart as you. How old are you? 34. Goodness gracious. Goodness gracious. <laughs> got to think about it. Yeah. 34. Yeah. So you're, you're so smart, but you've got to think about your age. There we go. It's a good finish. We might as well end it right there. I really appreciate Justin being with us here today. And, uh, you know, I, in all seriousness, I know it's, we joked about the price of it, but this book, he, his newest book, C.S. Lewis on politics and the natural law, it, it, is, it is within the price range now, $25 on an ebook. I just think it's a really good book. If you were at all fascinated by any of this conversation, I strongly recommend that you get the book and, and read it. Uh, he did write it with another guy, but I can always tell when the other guy's writing something and when Justin's writing something because I know Justin's hot buttons. <laughs> and uh, But it was, a, it, was, it was a really, really excellent book. So I, do that. Also, uh, Justin has a, a blog that appears now and then. You can Google Justin Dyer. And uh, at Mizzou, you can find his webpage, and he, he'll point to some of his articles that he's written. Uh, and uh, your, your blog appears sometimes in the, what's the name of that blog, the major site? Oh, uh, we've got a startingpointsjournal.com. Startingpointsjournal.com. And that's, that's run by the Kinder Institute, and then I, I write for a variety of other publications. Well, I see you on this other one a lot. Maybe Public Discourse. Public Discourse. For public Discourse. Yeah, Public Discourse. You're on that a lot. Yeah. And I think the stuff you have on there is pretty good. Thanks for listening to this podcast, and I hope you join us again next time on A Bigger Life.